We are a resource for learners, including every member of the Livestrong Cancer Institute's on-track educational pipeline from middle school to residency. We are a growing collection of interviews, talks, and experiences that uncover the myths and the uncertainties of cancer and careers in cancer in order to empower and inspire generations of thinkers and leaders. This is Cancer Uncovered, an education and empowerment podcast by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. Welcome back to Cancer Uncovered. I am Kristen Wynn with the Livestrong Cancer Institutes at Dell Medical School here at the University of Texas at Austin. This is part two of our episode featuring five new female cancer researchers at UT Austin who have all been awarded funding for their cancer research projects by the American Cancer Society Institutional Research Grant. Please make sure to go back and listen to part one if you haven't already. We heard about research projects from Dr. Cassandra Kalman, Dr. Tara Kaufman, and Dr. Lelia Noel. If you're ready for part two, remember, UT Austin has received money from the American Cancer Society to give to new cancer researchers on the UT campus with the hope that this money will really jumpstart their specific projects in cancer research and their careers. The science and the research is not possible without supplies, a paid staff, and other necessities. So receiving funding for your research as a scientist is very important to continue the work. Before we jump in with Dr. Chanyang Park and Dr. Jenny Spencer, remember the three big items we're focusing on beyond that we're going to learn some really cool new concepts in the science of cancer. One, consider the importance of teamwork and partnership There isn't a single researcher that doesn't mention the team of people it takes to make all this research happen. Number two, note how all of these different types of research in cancer are getting done. Sometimes you'll hear about the use of proteins and chemicals. Sometimes you'll hear about the use of surveys given to patients or one-on-one interviews with patients or digging in and deeply reviewing the data that has already been collected about a certain type of medicine and the effects of that on its patients. Number three, think through the skills all of these researchers require to get all of this accomplished. Yes, they need to understand the science, but these researchers also have to be able to write. They had to write their application and write about the research to apply for this money, which is referred to as a grant. In this episode, they are all presenting their research to a room full of other scientists. They have to be able to collaborate and work well with other people. And they have to get creative and come up with other ways to get things done when they run into roadblocks, from supply chain issues to staffing shortages to language barriers. Don't let the overwhelm take over. Take a deep breath and remember, research is a process and a team sport. If you don't understand the science, you are not alone. Make some notes, if you can, about the concepts that you'd like to go back and research on your own later. You can always reach out to us about a topic or concept in more detail if you need help. We'll give you the email address to use at the end of this episode. All right, I'm going to have Barbara Jones, the co-principal investigator or PI, one of the lead scientists on the ACS IRG, take it from here. Thank you very much, Dr. Noel. And now we will turn to Dr. Chen Yun Park, who is an assistant professor in, of health outcomes in the College of Pharmacy. So thank you for giving me this opportunity to present my project. And my name is Chen Yun Park, and 
I'm an assistant professor in the health outcomes division at UT College of Pharmacy. And the title of my presentation is going to be comorbidities and medication adherence among oldest old women with early stage breast cancer. Yeah, this is an online for today's presentation. So I'm going to talk about the project funded by the ACS ARG grant. Specifically, I'm going to talk about the background of this project and the three specific aims and the methodology at the very high level. And since I'm still working on this project, I'm going to share some interim findings of this project. And then I'm going to wrap up this presentation with the impact of this project. So let me explain the background very briefly. So oldest old women aged 80 years and older are the fast growing population in the United States, which now compromises about over 4 million women. And breast cancer is the most common cancer among oldest old women, account for about 12% of all cancer cases. And the substantial number of those oldest old women with breast cancer have a very wide range of comorbidities. And those comorbidities influence both mortality and healthcare utilization. So the adjuvant and the brain therapy, or AET, includes tamoxifen and three aromatase inhibitors, such as anastrozole, lactrozole, and ectomastane. And those AET is considered as a standard of care for adjuvant therapy in postmenopausal women with early-stage hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. And the adherence to AET is one of the key factors of long-term survivor in breast cancer patients. Despite this clinical benefit of taking AET appropriately, adherence to AET has posed a challenging. So based on previous research, previous literature, adherence to AET ranged from 33% to 88%. So breast cancer research for this oldest old women is lacking because they are often poorly represented in clinical trial because of some exclusion criteria. Also, in some observational studies, they are less likely to have a large enough sample size to be considered as a stand-alone group. And the oldest old women are very heterogeneous population because of the variation in aging process and comorbidities. Therefore, breast cancer treatment for this population should be tailored with the consideration of various comorbidities and different aging process. So based on those background, I have developed my specific aims for this project. So aim one, compare the comorbidity comorbidity profile between women aged 80 years and older with early stage breast cancer with two counterparts. And those two counterparts is going to be first women aged between 65 and 79 years old with early stage breast cancer. Second counterpart is going to be the women aged over 80 years and older without any cancer. And the aim two is going to be identify comorbidities associated with medication non-adherence to AET and short-term survivor among oldest, I mean, among this oldest old women population with breast cancer. 
And AIM-3 is going to be using machine learning. I will develop uh, prediction models for medication non-adherence and shorter survival among women aged over 80 years and early stage breast cancer. So this project is guided by the Anderson behavior models. So previously, this Anderson behavior model has been applied to breast cancer research in older adults. So I decided to use this I mean, conceptual framework. I used the SEER Medicare data for this project. So SEER data contains cancer-related information from cancer registry data, including patient characteristics and cancer-related characteristics and some death-related information. And the Medicare data is basically administrative claims data for covered healthcare services and utilization for Medicare enrollees. So my population is oldest old women treated with AAT for early stage hormone positive, hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So to select this population, I used the CR part of the data set for cancer related information to extract some cancer related information and the Medicare part of the data to extract treatment related information. So it's a retrospective cohort study. The study design in included three different periods. So the first one is the index identification period. And the index date is defined as the date of age initiation after the breast cancer diagnosis. And I included one year pre-index period for measuring baseline characteristics of patients, including all different comorbidities. So the primary independent variables were age type and 14 different comorbidity indicators, which, I mean, I refer the National Cancer Institute's comorbidity index to define those 14 different comorbidity indices. And the outcome variables were adherence to AAT and survival time. So mainly I used the linear mixed model with repeated measure for the adherence part. And I also used the generalized linear model and Cook's proportional hazard model to obtain some result for my AIM-1 and AIM-2. And for AIM-3, I'm going to use machine learning to build some prediction models for lower medication adherence and shorter survival in this population. So let me share some Brief results that I've obtained so far out of this study. So the first one is the pattern of ATUs between patient aged 65 to 75 years versus 80 over 80 years old. So the pattern of ATUs were pretty much similar between those two groups. And then in both groups, adherence to AAT decreased over the five year follow period. And overall, the adherence to AAT rate was lower in those older than 80 years compared to those less than 80 years. And out of 14 different types of comorbidities, nine of them had a higher frequency, higher percentage among those older than 80 years compared to those less than 80 years, including my myocardial infarction or heart failure and some other conditions. 
And then I hope this, so I'm still working on this project. So my aim three that I'm working on it now. And I hope this project will generate evidence on how to improve cancer care among all these sort of women with breast cancer because they have substantial number of comorbidities and that can affect their quality of life and their healthcare utilization and eventually their survival. That's it. And thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Park. And we will now turn to Dr. Jenny Spencer, who is an assistant professor at Dell Medical School. Thanks so much. Um, It's so exciting to present with such an amazing panel of fantastic women. Uh, My project is looking at inequities in HPV vaccination in the COVID-19 pandemic. So there are nearly 35,000 new HPV cancers diagnosed every year in the U.S., More than 90% of all of these cancers are preventable through HPV vaccination. Until recently, cervical cancer was the most burdensome of these cancers. It's recently been surpassed by oropharyngeal cancer. We still focus on cervical cancer as a main outcome because there are so many opportunities to prevent cervical cancer. The path to sort of eliminating cervical cancer as a public health problem has been outlined by a number of countries And one of the ways to do this is through implementing all the many tools we have. Unfortunately, in a system where we have this many tools, we also have a lot of opportunities to begin disparities through the sort of failure of each of these tools. So we know um, across the continuum of care, there are lots of opportunities to intervene on the cancer pathway and HPV vaccination provides another one of those. We have to consider its role in the sort of full continuum of cancer care. One thing we can do to understand the relative impact of aspects of this cancer care pathway is to use simulation modeling to ask questions about the impacts of interventions that happen at various points along this pathway. So for many of our cancer prevention and screening interventions, we can build simulation models to understand the link between HPV vaccination, which happens at ages 11 to 17, and cervical cancer, which happens at ages much older than that, sort of median around 40 or 50 years old. And we saw in this analysis that the distance between high and low poverty counties shrinks over time. So the impact of HPV vaccination is actually to help close this disparity, not fully, but to some extent, HPV vaccination is able to close the gap, which brings us to HPV vaccination in other parts of the U.S. So thinking about um, the rest of the U.S. as compared to Texas in this graph, we can see Firstly, that the U.S. is still lagging behind our goals for HPV vaccination, which ideally would be 80%, if not higher, and that Texas is falling behind the rest of the U.S. This is true across all racial and ethnic categories. So we see um, each group in Texas is doing worse than the comparable group in the United States. But we also see an interesting pattern for both the U.S., and Texas, where groups that maybe traditionally have lower cancer screening, so non-Hispanic Black individuals um, and Hispanic individuals, we see actually a higher initiation of HPV vaccination than compared to non-Hispanic white individuals. Those who fall into an other race or ethnicity category go into sort of two different directions when we compare the rest of the U.S. and Texas in this graph. But this, along with some other studies showing similar results, suggest something promising potentially about the impact of vaccination on closing some racial disparities in cervical cancer. 
This brings us to the role of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this is a study um, done at Mass General looking at the uh, use of cancer screening during the pandemic. And you can see this graph shows over time cancer screening by month. And there's a huge decline in the months of the pandemic when everything was fully closed and they stopped screening almost completely in March and April of 2020. And then we see a gradual recovery back to rates of screening that varies by race and by cancer site. So you can see for this center graph in cervical cancer, all racial groups sort of recover back to about pre-pandemic screening levels. For colorectal cancer, we see a much slower recovery and it's taking a while for all groups to get back. They're still kind of hovering together. And then in breast cancer screening, we see some recovery, but we see that the white group is recovering much faster than non-white participants. So the sort of difference in the recovery is important in thinking about the impact of COVID-19. So that brings us to my um, ACS award, which will use Texas Medicaid data to look at HPV vaccination in the context of COVID-19 in Texas. So we'll take individuals who are enrolled in the Texas Medicaid or Children Health Insurance Program and aged 11 to 17 years, and we'll compare monthly vaccination rates for this group before and after the COVID-19 pandemic, before and perhaps during because the pandemic is still happening, but before and after the peak of the pandemic, we'll compare initiation and completion with a goal of looking, one, at how steep the magnitude of the decline was. We know from some other studies that there was a delay in HPV vaccination over this period, and then how the recovery is going through um, data that will continue through midway through 2021, and whether there are any racial disparities in either that initial magnitude of decline or in the magnitude of the subsequent recovery. We're getting data back through 2017 because the first step will be modeling the um, seasonality of HPV vaccination. So we know vaccination tends to increase in the summer and fall and decrease in the winter. As a preparation going back to school, a lot of kids go in and get routine wellness visits and will get their vaccinations at that time. So we need to make sure we're getting sort of the seasonality component so that we can get the right tracking of what we think should be going on. And then we'll be able to incorporate this into simulation models like the one that I built before to start to think about what the impact of this might be on cancer in the long term in Texas. And importantly, to start thinking about what we do about it if we do identify differences um, by race or if we are looking at the Medicaid data and we see that we've seen a decline and a slow recovery, how we can actually start to um, improve that in a meaningful way. And that is my presentation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dr. Spencer. Well, I think that you will all agree that we have made some wonderful investments in young investigators across the full range of cancer research, you know, from bench to bedside. And so we feel really good about our wonderful ACS recipients. Can you tell us, you know, the impact of receiving this type of an award on your research? It's really exciting because the Medicaid data and you know working with Texas Medicaid is something that I'm I'm hoping to to do long term and getting the chance to to be able to buy the sort of data set that I need for this project and start to build that relationship to think about longer term pro projects has been really valuable. Um, but yeah, it's also been incredibly impactful for me. It takes a lot of support to for PRO monitoring, so I've been able to hire clinical research coordinator support, which has really been essential to get the study off the ground, be able to do this and develop and collect pilot data to support larger grants that I'm putting in. So for me, it's really been um, essential and a great learning experience.
Yeah. And I just wanted to add doing CDPR work also takes a lot of time and effort and being able to put our money behind the effort that, 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 that we want to be a part of the partnership really helps a lot to engage communities and build trust and, and get that train moving down the track. I just want to say it, it's been super helpful because purchasing chemicals is super expensive. Um, so monetarily, it's been really, been really helpful in that way. But also, it's allowing us to get some really cool preliminary data that hopefully should help make us more competitive for larger funding. Yeah, I think research funds helped me a lot since I was able to set up my research program out of this fund. So I was able to hire research assistant, and I was able to get this data set. So hopefully using this data set, I hope I can do so many different things. Do you all want to talk a little bit about, you know, one of the things that I've noticed is that you've created sort of a cohort. And can you talk about, and maybe specifically what that's like for young investigators, but young female investigators to sort of have this group uh, together, even though your research in some ways, it's very different. I've seen you all work together, and I wonder if you might talk about that. Yeah, I think that's one of the best parts about this is that there's a cohort of other female investigators. I mean, I kind of had worked a little bit with Tara, at least knew Tara prior to this, but getting to know the others, was it has been fantastic. And Jenny and I have been working together now on some papers, and I'm looking forward to working with Tara on some things in the future possible. And I'm sure that I'll be able to find overlap with the others. And it goes beyond that. Ginny and I are talking about football and other things. So <laughs> I think that it's been good to build camaraderie. It's nice starting at a new university and being and moving to a new place. I'm sure many, many of us have also had that experience, right, of, of uprooting your life and going to a new place and just finding other people who are at sort of a similar career phase and life phase is really reaffirming and just having people to, to struggle with or, you know, celebrate with as you're going through it is really nice. Well, I know that we are all um, very impressed with your work and proud of you. Um, you should know that we are all really excited to see your science uh, continue to grow and to help build this community of science together. Check your notes. What did you put down to go back and research? If you have questions for us, if we can help you decipher some of the concepts, please email us at livestrongcancerinstitutes at delmed.utexas.edu. For more information about the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, check out our website. We're at delmed.utexas.edu. You can also follow our chair, Dr. Gail Eckhart, on Twitter at sgaileckhart. Eckhart is spelled E-C-K-H-A-R-D-T. This is Kristen Wynn reporting for Cancer Uncovered. Thank you for listening and learning with us.